0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Berman Hour podcast. Before we get started, I need you to subscribe to this podcast. It does not matter where you are listening. I need you to subscribe. And in addition, rate it five stars or I'll fucking kill you and leave a nice review. I'll I'll give you some leniency on the review. But please, before we get going, please subscribe, rate and review the Berman Hour podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks a lot. Hello and welcome to the Berman Hour Podcast. It's good to be with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. My guest this week is John Marulo. Now, I've had a number of my good friends. Some people I even consider some of my best friends on this podcast. But John Marulo really is my best friend. He was the best man at my wedding. And uh, I consider him my best friend because of the amount of time I spend making fun of him. But one thing that we agree on and we don't make fun of each other about is our shared admiration and love for the band Bad Religion. And that is what this episode of the Berman Hour podcast is about, the band Bad Religion, and specifically the new book by Jim Ruland, Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion. So if you enjoy nerding out to two nerds who love Bad Religion and you love Bad Religion as well, then this podcast is perfect for you. If you don't, then, well, give it a chance and put on a bad religion record. Everyone's on these streaming services now. You got Apple Music, you got Spotify, you got YouTube, you got the internet. Look up some bad religion stuff. Go down a bad religion rabbit hole. Treat yourself. Now, John and I have a proclivity for some of the more, I don't want to say obscure, but maybe some of the less popular, at least less popular in America, bad religion records. And we talk about that on this podcast. We talk about the book. We talk about, really, about how each member kind of approached the book, and I cannot recommend the book enough. Again, it's called Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion, and it's by author Jim Ruland. I hope I'm saying your name correct, Jim. I do hope to have you on the pod soon. But again, Jim Ruland wrote Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion, and I cannot recommend it enough. So I officially need a new hobby, and I need something to replace the hobby that I can no longer partake in, and that being paying close attention to polls and electoral politics. I'm not sure where my enjoyment for this came from, but for the past 20 years or so, I've really enjoyed diving into polls, what they mean, what pollsters do how that information is distributed, how that information is then covered in the media. And it all came to a head in 2016 because all of the polls pretty much got it wrong. And I was so just in shock, in disbelief that we somehow elected Donald fucking Trump to be the president of the United States. I was sickened by it. So I went to the data and the data was wrong, but it was all technically within the margin of error. So they kind of got a pass, right? Kind of. So these four years have been hell for numerous reasons. And let's fast forward to a couple weeks ago. Thankfully, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump in the 2020 election. Thank fucking goodness. But it didn't happen on election night. It happened five days later. Now, for those of you that do fantasy sports, you might understand this. Imagine if your favorite football team, Your favorite organization makes it to the Super Bowl. And not only that, but the team that has the most players that are in your fantasy league, your fantasy draft, that you need them to do well in this game are also in the fucking Super Bowl. And then the Super Bowl comes, and instead of it being done in an evening or a night, it lasts for five fucking days. And the agony and torment of wondering if you're going to win big... Or lose big. Well, that's what this election season was like for me because I spent the last four years neck deep into all of this data trying to better understand what the fuck happened in 2016. That after election night until that Saturday when Pennsylvania was called for Biden, I was just in this fucking data and numbers purgatory, losing my fucking mind. Not only at the fact that it was way closer than I thought it was going to be but that the polls were so fucking wrong again, and this time they were far beyond the margin of error. No pass for these pollsters this time. They got it wrong. So if you have any suggestions for new hobbies <laughs> that you think would be good for me, that would be welcomed. So send me a direct message on Instagram, at Hour, and... Thanks again for tuning in. Enjoy my interview with one of my best friends, John Marulo from the band Protagonist, and my fellow bad religion nerd. Let's get it. This week's episode of the Berman Hour podcast is brought to you by our friends and sponsors at New Wave, who are bringing us Flow State Coffee. Excuse me one second. I just had a sip of Flow State Coffee, and now I just hit the mic stand with the mug. This is officially the worst copy ad read ever for a podcast, but I don't give a fuck because the product is good and I'm drinking the product. Let me tell you why you should have this here flow state coffee from new wave product, because it helps you get your shit done and it helps you stay focused. It's coffee blended with rock cow and L-theanine. Now what is L-theanine and how is that going to help me? Here's how it is an odorless and tasteless amino acid that naturally reduces stress and anxiety. And when mixed with the caffeine from the coffee, it sets your brain into an optimum performance mode. So you are not distracted, you are focused, and you get done everything you need to get done. You hear me? Let me get you a discount. 10% off your first order. Go to newwave.co slash Berman. N-O-O-W-A-V-E dot C-O slash B-E-R-M-A-N. That's right. Let us help you Get focused with Blow State Coffee. All right, let's get it. So you went back and reread some of the books. How long did it take you to finish the book initially?
1: So I think I got the book uh, the, maybe the day or two after it came out, or maybe August 20th, and then I read it in about three or four days pretty
0: quick. Yeah, I I think I read I finished it on Monday and I got it on Friday. So it was it was a weekend. Okay, pretty read. quick as well. Yeah, but you know there were things there were things that you had mentioned that you kind of you kind of like I anticipated, and I wonder if if they were the same thing. But we'll we'll kind of get into the book a, a little bit later. But before I'm just kind of curious, what was your introduction to bad religion?
1: So I first heard Bad Religion, uh, probably where a lot of people heard Bad Religion for the first time in our age group, which was the Punkorama, yes, one compilation on Epitaph. And
0: how fucking monumental it, was that compilation, though? I mean, not just Bad Religion, but the No effect songs are great. RKL, Total right. Chaos, you know.
1: I mean, it's it's the first time that I heard any of those bands. Uh, starting with Bad Religion into NoFX. I think, you know, Rancid, as you said, um, you know, RKL, um, Total Chaos, and Bad Religion didn't stick the first time. Really? It didn't end up sticking. Yeah, it did not for whatever reason. I'm not really sure why, but bands like NoFX and and, and Total Chaos really, really stuck uh, on me more than Bad Religion did. And it wasn't until two years later on a re listen of it where I heard Do It do what You Want just stuck. And I went right Two out years and later? Suffer. Two years later. Yeah. So I went for that whole, like, kind of first year and a half of like immersing myself in punk rock music without bad religion being a part of it.
0: <laughs> That's fucking crazy. I mean, w- when you went back to it, was it a-, a calling or did you just rediscover it by happenstance?
1: I think, and I think a lot of people, probably a lot of people listening, you can. Um, relate to this as well as when we had CD books, like CD binders, right? That had the CDs and the the, the lyrics or the, the artwork in it. And I said, let me let me give Punkarama One a listen. I haven't listened to it in forever. And as soon as I um, as soon as Do What You Want started, I thought, what the hell is this? Whoa! I am late on this. I'm going out to buy the record this comes from. Oh, it says it comes from a record called Suffer. I'm going out and I'm buying the CD for Suffer.
0: Yeah, it, that's that, that seems to be such a, a common story for people. I, I'm just remembering this now. I was with my neighbor, Matt Enos. I think he had purchased the CD and we would listen to it at his house. For some reason, we were listening to it in his sister's bedroom. So the first time I heard Do What You Want was in Meredith Enos' bedroom, which is strange, but um, it, was, it was really love at first listen. So you hadn't heard bad religion beforehand?
1: Not to my knowledge, not in an active way on kind of one of those things where you go back and you go back and reference these things again, where you don't have the, uh, um, you don't have the palate or even the understanding of what you heard. So years later, I realized, oh, I seen the video for 21st Century Digital Boy before I knew what. Uh, punk really was. Like right before I discovered punk, I saw the video for it and heard the song and I said, this is, I've heard this before. I've seen this before. I think
0: I share that and exact sentiment. Sorry to interrupt because I, I think yeah. that if I remember the timeline correctly, it was on 120 minutes, the 21st Century Digital Boys song it was either right around the same time if not before hearing Do What You Want on that first punk-orama. But I, I honestly, I can't remember if I just on a whim picked up Recipe for Hate first, or if I heard Do What You Want first. But it doesn't make sense that I would go from Do What You Want to just buying Recipe for Hate, right? I mean, I was enough of a punk rock scholar at that point. I was enough of a researcher into the genre that I I would not have made the mistake and bought Recipe for Hate thinking that that do what you want was on it. I, I was well aware that it was suffer that I was looking for, but I just can't remember the order of it. Do you remember the order of, of sequentially kind of how, how the bad religion barrier was broken down for you?
1: Yeah, over you know over those first couple years or just over well, yeah, until so, present you, time. Well, yeah.
0: no, no, just kind of initially. So you, you heard Do What You Want on Punkorama, and you were able to kind of connect it to the twenty first century digital boy. When did it really start encompassing your CD collection?
1: So you know this is this is an interesting one because I bought it you know I bought Suffer in the summer of nineteen ninety six on the same day I bought Black Flag the first four years and a number of other uh, CDs and records and tapes really over that period of time and during that fall of nineteen ninety six listened to Suffer a lot um, and just it did not come out of uh, you know did not come off of my headphones and then I. On a whim, I bought the tape for "How Can Hell Be Any Worse" because you you might remember in, in 1996 you couldn't buy the CD for "How mm. Can Hell Be Any Worse" because that That's was on the 85 compilation, which actually Brick Garowitz goes into in the book, which I found pretty fascinating. And I and at the time I uh, I was getting ready to go on a trip with my uh, my parents and my brother out west, and I had a Walkman. I didn't have a I did not have a CD player because remember at the time those you know, they skipped and everything like that, and tapes were just easier to carry around. So I thought well, this artwork, you know, the famous Ed Clover uh, photo, you know, didn't know that who that was at the time, but just, you know, this shot of Los Angeles in red with black type. And I remember putting it in the tape player or putting in the Walkman and saying, okay, this kind of sounds like Suffer, but in a lot shittier way, like, but I can tell it's the same singer though. His voice sounds different. So it's really, if for me, it went from Suffer to how can hell be any worse. And then over time, you know there was that period in the mid 90s to late 90s as we're talking about here that I didn't buy new bad religion records. I had heard 80 85 uh, from from a friend, I guess if I could remember. I knew that that was there. And then it wasn't until the New America came out in 2000 that I started listening to bad religion super actively again, which is probably an interesting order to go in for people and their love of bad religion. But if you to go suffer, how can I help be any worse? Wow 80, 85, somewhere in there. And then the new America in two, summer 2000.
0: Well, that explains a lot. I mean, I guess, you know, for our listeners, I'm 38 years old. You are the same age as me. You're about 10 days older than I am, but we both graduated in the year 2000. So the new America was it came out right around our graduation time, and it's it's really a pivotal record for us. I didn't realize how pivotal it was for you in terms of being a a pillar, a Bad Religion record pillar for you in terms of y- your discovery into them as a storied band with such a crazy catalog.
1: Yeah, and it's it's and it's interesting. You know, you, you you tie that. You know, there's that. Uh... You know, correlation and, and that delineation, really that line, uh, for me on the New America Summer 2000. And um, you know, I think for, for the listeners at home that might uh, stumble upon this podcast, uh, you know, we both play in, in in the band called Protagonist, and the first singer, they know, man, singer, they, know. Yeah, they know, they know, the first singer for there was actually a first, there was a singer before Peter, uh, who, my brother, who's a singer for Protagonist now, and he was working. Uh, this guy Steve was working at uh, Borders, uh, the bookstore, which. I'm not sure if all borders are closed, some are closed. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, but he was working in the music section and said, yeah, this new Bad Religion record's really good. And I go, man, I haven't lost a Bad Religion in a while and put it in the car. And uh, those, that first, uh, uh, you know, those first chords, if you've got a chance, to start playing uh, with like the little roll on the, the ride cymbal. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. And it's big and it's bright. And I love the sound of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, you 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 are from Pennsylvania, but you your formative years were really your your later high school years and college years were in South Florida, and uh, the reason why I point that out is because to me the new America is a is a really bright record uh, sonically, but but also in its in its kind of tone, especially compared to the previous record, No Substance. When you were in that position where you didn't know their back catalog besides the early, early stuff that you had gotten into and when you heard New America, how did that record strike you besides being interested? Was it was it the same bright record for you that it was for me or or or, or what?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I see when I hear that record, I think of uh I think of South Florida. I think of South Florida in the summertime. I think of the sun being out. I think of um that time period, that summer of 2000 and going forward. I also think about it as a, it's, it's an, it was my re-entry into Bad Religion. So that's why it's a special record for me. I think it serves as the same for, uh, you know, my, my brother. It is um, a record that when I would tell people, oh, it's one of my favorite Bad Religion records, people would look at me sideways, but it always brings back that feeling of this big, bright time. And also that just that kind of that, I mean, you, you remember graduating high school and being eighteen and you, you know, you getting ready to go to school or go to the next phase, or uh, you know, playing playing in bands and trying to get shows and thinking of going on tour for the first time. It's that promise of possibility, which is really interesting because for for bad religion, that record is anything but the promise of possibility. So it's really interesting how artists can create something where it was the end of the line for them in a lot of ways, but for me it was the, the beginning of reentry in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, let's let's dive into the book. So the book came out recently. It was co-authored between pretty much everybody in the band, but primarily Greg Graffin, Jay Bentley, Brett Gerwitz, and then kind of secondarily Brian Baker. And then to a much lesser extent, you've got some management. You have uh, Mike and Jamie, the newest members of the band, and Jim Ruland, who had written a book Uh, with Keith Morris about Black Flag previously, which is also excellent. But the story, uh, the book is called Do What You Want, the story of bad religion. And, uh, you know, I got giddy about the prospect of this when I heard about it in the same way that I would a a new record, perhaps more, because this is really, you know, there's a vagueness that always kind of existed with, with bad religion. And I don't know if it was because I was an East Coast punk rocker, and they were a West Coast band. And then, when I had a more of a, a sentient idea of how the music industry worked on an underground level, they were on the majors at that point. And then, uh, you know, we were always kind of missing each other in terms of of intent. So I I don't feel like I was necessarily meant to be a big as big a fan of Bad Religion as I became. But this book, I I always I always hoped for something like this or a documentary like this because I imagined that it would. Really fill in the gaps of knowledge that that I had, that uh, things that I could not decipher from the liner notes of all their records, and you know the, the tidbits that I would get from interviews. Um, but you know, up, upon reading this, what I, I take it you like the book. How much did you love it? I mean, did this satiate your 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 thirst like it did for me?
1: I think it. I think satiate's a good a good description there. It's hard when satiate you're I
0: just have to say satiate is a uh not very good Avail record. It's their first record. <laughs> it's not very good. it got <laughs> a, future pod,
1: a future podcast on the <laughs> ranking of Avail records. We'll do I, we'll I do it. Here, we'll I, do it. I am yeah. here for that as well. The Yeah, I really liked it. I think and um, you know for you know Uh, You know me, you know me personally, and I can be obsessive over the things that I like slash love to the point where I can't get enough information. So I think that even if the Do What You Want, the book, was 800 pages long, it might not have been enough for me. I think it's a band, Battle Religion is a band that never really put themselves over in interviews, and they existed in a, they had several versions of their band that existed before... Uh, You know, you had easy access to the internet to even find these things. So you're, we're piecing together pieces of information out there in the, in the universe. So for me, I really liked it. And even when I was, before we were getting ready to, before I was getting ready to talk to you earlier, I read about maybe 30 or 40 more pages, just skipping around the book. And I thought this is a book that I'm going to be able to reread as well, because um, I might have questions again. I'm like, okay, what were they thinking about when they were recording against the grain or, um, Uh, stranger than fiction or whatnot so i did really like it i think i would have um we could probably get into this a little later i would have liked to expand on a couple different areas maybe they didn't totally expand into or go a little bit um off the reservation deep uh universal existential terror into some of the driving forces behind some of those songs
0: yeah and also you know the stories involved and this is not a knock on on jim at all who i i hope to be talking to soon as well because he's he's a really nice guy and i think at a certain point you have to be concise it wouldn't be on brand necessarily for a band that champions the minute and 15 second songs (laughs) to to have you know this opus that's 800 or 900 pages even though freaks like us would just you know feast on that for months and months and months it this book makes sense you know it flies by much in the way that a bad yep. religion record does and it does an excellent job at doing so however when you have someone like greg graffin who has a goddamn phd and his books are are interesting as well and his story is interesting combined with the story of somebody like jay bentley who i i think more so than anybody, the book really goes into him, his personal life. It, it goes into his personal life deeper, and Mr. Brett's personal life deeper than I think anybody else kind of in the book. And uh, maybe that was intentional. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe they're just a little bit more of an open book, no pun intended, when it when it came to what they were, you know, the information and and the the history and the stories and memories that they were they were giving to Jim Ruland. But, you know, uh, Ryan Baker could have a four-set volume on his life in all of the bands that he's been in. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. let let alone what... So I, I think that, that Jim Ruland did an excellent job of corralling the storied history of, of those four, you know, punk rock architects in, into something concise while also talking about each record and talking about it. but there was a little bit of a formula that I noticed like it would kind of get into a record and then it would talk about you know um uh, three or six songs from each record and it would kind of right. clump them together and um it, it's the kind of thing too like when when you see a band that has a greatest hits and then you realize like oh like I don't like the same songs by this band that Other people seem to like, you know, so when they were mentioning the songs in this book, I was like, oh, when are they going to talk about strange denial or something? And they just didn't get to it. And I was I was crushed. Or like the
1: songs that the songs that you absolutely love that the artists themselves either don't don't love or don't uh, don't cover and with the same or hold in the same regard as uh, as you just referred to a, a song from. 1998s no substance yeah you know, and, 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 but it's the same thing with like a record like let's say against the grain might be my absolute favorite bad religion record i would have loved 10 pages of details on how brett garowitz got the guitar sounds for that record but i understand that would not actually serve the purpose of telling the story about religion that might serve the purpose of uh satiating the needs and and wants of of myself but um I think the the book ain't I, I could give this book to someone who has not been involved in punk rock for the last twenty five years and I think they would be able to understand bad religion as, as a band, bad religion as a people and bad religion's role in music.
0: Yeah, it certainly puts them into a significant historical perspective that any any layman could understand and, and respect. Mm-hmm. Um but what what are some of the, the things in the book that that you learned that really surprised you. I'm kind of curious to hear what your, your take on that is. And before, actually before you get into that, something you did not tip me off to, but there was a museum of tolerance reference that, that had to do with two people that I used to work with closely. Did did you catch that early in the book? That blew my fucking mind that they knew about that story. It, It took everything in my power not to call you when I saw that. Yeah, on there. I mean, whatever. Um, it's a. Because po- I was like, we can spoil thought, it. Yeah,
1: but I, but when not only two people that you worked with, but two people I met when I went to the museum with you. Yeah, and I thought I'm like, we are this book is only one degree separated from Jeff Berman, and Divided Heaven.
0: Yeah. Piece. So for the listeners, there's there's a, a part in the book where they're talking about how all the punks would go to the Okie Dog, which you know when I was a punk rocker as a teenager, we went to fucking Denny's. It's it's all the same shit. It's just geographically different so okie dog is on the corner of gardner and santa monica boulevard in west hollywood it is now a fat burger but when it was an okie dog in the 80s that's where the punks went west hollywood is the gay community of los angeles and at the time it was and it still is a destination for runaways and uh, a teenage runaway a gay teenage runaway was there hanging out Got accosted and jumped and beaten within an inch of his life by a bunch of neo Nazis. Years later, one of those neo Nazis had a, you know, a, a a redemptive moment, realized the errors of his ways, and started volunteering at the Museum of Tolerance in Los Angeles, which is a uh, Holocaust education based tolerance museum, for lack of a better term. And somebody else that was volunteering there at the time. Uh, was the victim of said hate crime and they reconciled their differences and began doing speaking engagements and became really quite a remarkable story for a number of years i don't think they're still doing it i think tim um the former neo-nazi still speaks and um you know working with they were you know they were co-workers so we had our ups and our downs when I was a manager at the museum but we, we don't need to get into that, but the way that, that they kind of put it into focus when they would tell their story matched up to exactly what Bad Religion was talking about in the way that the violence was just omnipresent in, in the Hollywood scene in the early 80s. And and when that when I read that line, I almost jumped out of my chair. It was incredible.
1: Yeah, no, that was a pretty that was a pretty wild and uh, special thing to see there. And I think, in that, to go off of that, to go off of that, that thread that you started there, the you know the the opening chapters of the book talking about, uh, Graffin and, and and Bentley and Garowitz growing up in Los Angeles, California, and in Woodland Hills. And I didn't know any of that. I've driven through there, I've driven through there with you before, but thinking of bad religion as 15 year old kids, bad religion was so young when they started, they weren't 23, 24 years old, and like some of their, who became their contemporaries, which their contemporaries didn't really want to take these kids from the suburbs seriously. But understanding that, um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot since we've been in this pandemic about, of, of COVID-19 that we're missing a lot of those random moments of meeting somebody at the park, on the street, at, you know, uh, school, at work, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, and then the, these random occurrences and these, these people were gra- gravitated towards each other to start this band. I think that that was really interesting to me. I think I loved the parts that were written in the run-up to suffer um, especially not too much has been written about that. in some of the reviews of the book, a lot has been concentrated on uh, into the unknown is what people have been noticing the reviews of the book of like of that really being um, double clicked on for lack of a better phrase to really talk about yeah. what happened there and their feelings. Cause there's always been rumors about what happened to those records, what happened there. But to me in that, that the beautiful idea about was suffering and a record that essentially went on as many people have said to change, Everything that at the time, Bad Religion were cast aside, written off in the words of Jay Bentley. People didn't give a fuck about what Bad Religion was doing. They were just doing their thing. And when they came back together, they wrote those songs quickly with Graffin bringing in songs, Brett Garowitz bringing in songs. And I think one of my favorite moments in the book that I've come back to a number of times is when Jay Bentley talks about um, Brett Garowitz and him. Driving, Or I think maybe it would have been Brett Gerwitz, uh, saying it. I, I can't remember which, which uh, person was saying it, but the that they listened to Suffer four, to, four or five times in the car, um, the unmastered version on cassette, and just looking at each other saying, is this as good as we think it is? That's a great that they story. Knowing yeah. something. And it gave me the chills. It's giving me the chills right now that this record that is now going to turn 32 years old next week, as of this, as of this uh, conversation that we're having right now, uh, September of 2020, that there was only five people in the world that do the song because they recorded it themselves as well, which is just really special and cool.
0: Yeah. That was something that, uh, that really hit home with me because suffer is so significant to me personally. And I, I never thought i was you know in a, in a vacuum in, in that regard but the way in which the manner the, the book goes into describing suffer and manner of being a a foundation for everything that came after it and not in a, a braggadocious way per se but just in a in a matter-of-fact way suffer changed everything i mean suffer made no effects want to be a good band suffer put reestablish southern california as a destination for 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 punk rock and and it's not as if there weren't bands there at the time and there weren't great bands at the time but it it was kind of the missing link so to speak mm-hmm. and uh we we always kind of know that but something else that you said that 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 caught my attention which which I noticed is i didn't realize how much into the unknown really got stuck in their proverbial craw as they say uh, they, I mean that sure. the process of that record Jay leaving the band them releasing the record the response the almost the way they paint it is an immediate response to the record an immediate extremely negative response to the record um and it's something that like it's it's kind of the common thread throughout the book they talk about it obviously is, how they recorded it. They talk about the release. They go into all those details. And for a record that isn't on streaming services, you can't really buy it. It's part of box sets and stuff. You only have to go the bootleg route, which I have done. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But for a record that that, that you don't even... I know that your collection... You don't even own this record. I don't even know if you've ever listened to it all the way through, and I'm not judging you for it. But for a record that they've tried to wipe from their existence... They sure spent a lot of fucking pages talking about this. It was like a reoccurring thing. Did you notice that?
1: I did notice that. And for the record, I do have I do have a copy of Into the Unknown. Not a vinyl, but on a, in a, on my old iPod is what I had it on. So I've listened to it through a number of times. If I, I'll hit a random song here and there, or when when I saw Bad Religion last summer, uh, they played the Dichotomy, which was really cool. Yes, I did. I did notice that it became. And to use one of the phrases they use later in the book um it's almost parts of the different parts of the experience of into the unknown became an organizing principle of sorts with uh how parts of the book were laid out and parts of thinking how they were thinking about their own their, their own decision making um as they went as they matured as a band when they left epitaph to go to atlantic when breck arowicz left the band they had the you know writing the gray race and, and these other records making sure they made decisions that um were honest and true to the legacy of bad religion because they use that as an example of what not to do that they came out with how can I help Be any worse in 1982. And all of a sudden it sold 10,000 copies. These, again, these kids from the suburbs and, and, I'm, and I'll go, I want to come back, make sure we come back to this idea of these kids from the suburbs, this, this idea here, but that they were, they were one of like that the last bands that come out of that scene at that time period, 1982, and you, you, I love how they talk about in the book that that record. How can LPMS is not as revered as, let's say, the the adolescent blue record because it was not available. Because what happened was they recorded the record, uh, they released the record. It was it was really huge, and then they record a record that is so far off the vision of that, and so far off what people were listening to that totally like, you don't even because you, you don't hear about that. And at this point in time, in 2020, taking even those chances, and I think they have, and it seems how how they talk about it, especially Graf and Garrow. It wasn't so much they were taking a chance; they were just saying, "Hey, we're just trying to write songs that sound like this because Brett wrote a song like this, or Greg wrote a song like this, so I'm going to write a song like this, and people people should dig it." And just just a, a miscalculation in all um, all respects.
0: Yeah, and it and it, it kind of weaves their story together because whatever the opposite of a North Star is, you know is is what they turned into the unknown into for for lack of a better term for how sure. they because they were they were a band that was so focused on longevity and they were so focused on kind of the road ahead and and they talk a little bit too about how their idea of an album cycle evolved from 10 months to a year to a year and a half to 2 years to 3 years to where now they just don't have anything because the offers come in regardless of you know, whether they have a new record out in, in, in the world or not. But when Jay was talking about the dichotomy at the end of the book, I was just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, like they just, they've, they've turned this ultimate negative into a positive. They're able to shed light on it with pride, which I, I I thought they always could have done, but I I hadn't, you know, I didn't, didn't walk in their shoes. So I don't know what they really went through at the time around that record, but you know, it was incredibly interesting that it was just this, it was like this nagging issue that just wouldn't go away. And it's almost like, you know, sometimes your biggest enemy is yourself. And, and I think that they, they, you, to use a pro wrestling term, they worked themselves into a shoot brother where they were so, they were so determined to eradicate that record from their existence the 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 mental the amount of ram that it took to make that happen and just embedded it into their psyche and there's flashes of it in practically every maybe with the exception of suffer i'd say there's flashes of into the unknown in every record they've done since then
1: i think it's um the flashes of we are going to do what we want to do we have a and this is another clear line for this the whole book we have a vision of this band and we are going to see that vision through for uh for better or for worse maybe let's not make a decision as bad as recording into the unknown but let's um let's do our thing and when we when you think of suffer again there was nothing that sounded like that or even close to that in 1988 and so it's, ta- I think it's still taking them being true to that, then the vision of, we are, we're creating the sound, um, uh, ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What, 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 was something else that surprised you that you learned?
1: I think, uh, um, the run up to the, the, run up. the whole, the whole section of stranger than fiction through the gray race, the whole the actual explanations of why they signed to Atlantic records, why Breck Arrowitz ended up leaving the fallout from that, the, uh, the hiring or the acquisition of Brian Baker into bad religion. And then um, going into record the gray race really was a fascinating section of the book for me. I, I, I trust it was for you as well. Um, and you know, Greg Graffin essentially saying like I know I had to nail this there was a lot of pressure on me to write this record and while it wasn't a concept record it had this organizing principle of the gray race and recording it with Rick Ocasek and Brian Baker coming into the band and knowing that um, and in right before that saying him saying with with Brett leaving his partner essentially uh, are we, are we gonna throw this away right when we take to the next step? Like, no way! I am going to redouble my efforts. Yeah, so I am going to redouble my efforts in the, in this wake of uh, in the wake of trauma and tragedy, or of the band people leaving and, and things like that. That they always say, like, nope, like we are gonna do this. And and it was that time it was Graffin's turn to say, I am gonna put my I am putting my studies on hold, and we're we're gonna keep going, and we're gonna I am gonna try to write the best record possible
0: yeah and and I think it too I don't know if they specifically mentioned it but I imagine that the gray race is probably their second biggest record ever worldwide behind stranger than fiction um just because they, they do mention that it was incredibly popular in Scandinavia it heightened them to a just a completely different level in Germany and other parts of the mainland but yeah I, I that part was really interesting to me too you know we look at it through the lens and like I said, we're both thirty-eight-year-old men. We remember when there were three channels and we remember the world before the internet. We remember all that. But, you know, if, if we were dealing with this now, there would be a press le- a press release from either Epitaph or Atlantic about Brett Gerwitz leaving, whether it was acrimonious or not. You know, we would know about it. And for as much as I paid attention to bad religion at that time, I I didn't know that Brett Gerwitz left the band until I opened up the LP of, of the gray race. And I saw this guy that looked like he was a minor threat and I couldn't figure it out. And I had to do the cross reference, you know, but it's a, that was a part of their history that, that was not, it was, it was touched upon, but it was never gone into in, in such detail. And the, I don't mean to knock Dr. Graffin about this, but I don't think he's the greatest interview subject because he, He's not political. He's a little overly diplomatic, I think, when it comes to answering questions about the band, particularly when it comes to talking about their legacy. Um, and and that was such a significant time. And by the time the world came around to accepting a certain level of, of accessibility to bands, I would say in the mid 2000s, you know, um, the entire focus was on the story of them returning to Epitaph, which is a remarkable second act and very interesting and and don't get me started, but it was kind of as if it, it, it seemed as if the things that they had established, the faculty that they built within themselves to relinquish care about into the unknown, they seemed to kind of repeat that in the early 2000s in regards to a lot of what they did during the Atlantic years. You get what I'm saying?
1: I think I get what you're saying. I think that um you know I won't I, I won't try to guess or legislate what what uh what Greg Graffin has in his mind or heart when he's when he's giving those interviews. But I think I think but but I think the the book I think you get this vibe here is that battle religion are very careful to define their legacy and and how they think about it and I'm glad they do this because they are very much an active band who I think arguably put out one of the best records that they put out in the last 20 years, uh, last year with, uh, 2019's age of unreason.
0: Absolutely. So I think,
1: so I think that's why I think it is, um, you know, to, to quote, I mean, to kind of like, uh, paraphrase them a little bit from the song, you know, the answer, like, uh, I think it's from the, from the answer that, you know, no, no better, or no better religion can, no better religion song can make your life complete. That's not from the answer. It's a different song from generator, but the, the idea that, um, it's up to you to kind of—and uh, us and the listeners, both that are 38, 58, and 8 to define what bad religion is in 2020 and, and beyond.
0: Yeah, I just—I found it—I found the book to be subtly perpendicular—maybe that's the wrong—anachronistic to the way that they would present themselves previously in liner notes. I mean, we've kind of come to expect bands to kind of wear their hearts on their sleeves— <laughs> on social media. And before that was the thing, it was kind of in what you said in the liner notes, even if it was, you know, in kind of like a see you in the pit kind of like posturing, you know, punk thing or whatever. But, but bad religious, like they never really showed their hand, you know what I mean? And, and something else that that I had forgotten about when they were touring in support of no substance. I think that was the first time that they had done the warp tour. I saw them in Philadelphia and I remembered the bad religion tent and it was beyond just a, a, even you know a a typical Warped Tour band merchandise tent. This was a tent that had a bunch of stuff in it, and I remember I went there. I, I I met Bobby Shayer, um, which which was a lot of fun, and it was kind of like a peek into them. But even still, they weren't. It was like they were never really open, you know. Like they they yeah. just they never they never tipped their hand. So their fans, and and I, I think after reading this book, it was, I, I couldn't tell if that was a deliberate move, and and this is really the peak behind the curtain that we had all been waiting for, or that's just not their personality types, and we weren't, I, I don't know, we always kind of expected more. What do you what do you think?
1: Almost like we like oh, we weren't missing out after all. I think that by the time you, you talk about the Warp Tour, you know, meeting Bobby Sherr, I, I imagine it was probably the, the 1998 warp tour yes um and i think at that point they had they had already been a band for you know, 18 years the other large bands that were a part of that tour the the you know the no effects of the world the rancids rancids of the world were fans of that band that's how they even got into that band and i think then and then you have the the fans that are at warp tour besides that and i think again i i mean i i don't know but the the, the, the vibe that i get from that the book is that you know we this is this is something that we started to do as a as a hobby. This was never a job, and we write these songs. We wrote these songs for us. We yeah. write these songs for us, but and for some reason, they really resonate with people. And they really resonate with um, you know people that love punk rock music. And I think for people like us, you know, growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and then in 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 South Florida, and, and, and getting into local punk bands that were accessible. You know, you see them walking around the mall or, um, you know, that the Bouncing Souls would be playing down the street or are against all authority from, you know, would be, you know, down the street. The idea that Bad Religion was this ultimate big punk band that you feel that it wasn't accessible. So there has to be something else there when you realize these are people just like you, but they're just they're writing the songs that you love and then hopefully inspiring you to do something, play music go to school, uh, impact
0: your community in some way. Yeah. Did you find this reading this book pointed you towards any specific records of theirs anything that you have really been listening to a lot since you've been reading the book?
1: Yeah, it it pointed me to a, a number of things. I went back and watched the along the way video via, via YouTube, um, you know knowing that was in that, that first tour they went back to then when they went to germany uh, in in touring on suffer and just like just to take it in of that time period stranger than fiction i was taking in a lot because i think a, a really a large section of that or a significant section of the book is focused on that record the run up to that record and what they were trying to do and i think the process of belief is another record that i really spent uh, a lot of time with over these last few days because I see the correlation between suffer the record that changed everything and the process of belief, which is uh, an album that is essentially their rebirth and fire both times. No one gave a shit about what they were doing. Jay Bentley says no one came to the studio when we recorded process of belief. We'd people had cast us aside. We'd become a parody of ourselves in his, his own word there. So I thought um, listening to both those records back to back suffer and then into the process of belief, um was really uh, interesting to kind of experience that energy after uh while i was reading the book and when i was finished with it
0: i thought about that too because you know you and i privately and constantly in the van and, and on the phone we always talk about bad religion because we love them so much and it inevitably comes down to eras so there's kind of the the early 80s era and then there's there's the trilogy, the trilogy of Suffer No Control Against the Grain. Then you kind of have this no man's land of mid-90s with with Generator and Recipe for Hate that are all over the place. And then you have Stranger Than Fiction which is kind of like a, a, a line in the sand where they really set the bar for their career. And then it kind of goes into, you know, the dark years, the Atlantic years, the years without Mr. Brett, the three years, the three records rather, Without Brett Gerwitz, and then there's like it's almost like you flip the record over and it starts again, and then you know you have the new trilogy that kind of begins. But but it's almost as if if you have a palate cleanse, if you have it three times, then the palate cleanse becomes the flavor. So by against the grain, you know against the grain could be a better record than Suffer or No Control, but it was the third one in this like rapid fire succession, so it did well. But I feel like it doesn't necessarily maintain the same historical significance for a lot of people. And in the same way that the process of belief was the splash or the palate cleanse, by the time you get to new maps of hell, you're a little bit used to the, you're used to the new and the new isn't as new anymore. And then from that era, you have this, the past three records, which have been way spaced out much more than any other time in their career. And even more kind of all over the place. I I, I don't know. I I found that the records that I've gone back and really been listening to a lot have been (laughs) The Grey Race, which is my favorite record of theirs, but I'm seeing it through a a new lens, which is really enjoyable. And the other record is Into the Unknown. And the more I listen to it, the more I love it. And the more I love it and the more I kind of feel like I understand it, the more it doesn't doesn't sound that different to me. I, I think... You know, if they would have released that record in 1992 and not 1982, I don't think it would it would have been such such a negative a negative experience for for the fan base for the band. Um, so it, you know, it, unto itself, into the unknown is is quite phenomenal, and those those that's what I, I keep going back to is just the thread throughout the book and I think Jim did an excellent job of kind of tying this together is that their records are important to us because their records are important to them and you can tell that their records are important to them. And then yes, whereas in an interview, uh, Brian Baker, who seems to have like a very dry (laughs) sense of humor and, and, and kind of a witty personality, you know, he might say something disparaging about no substance or new America, which is his right to do. Um, But having, you know, a little bit of a deeper dive and having more access into what they actually felt writing those records, what they were going through when they were writing those records, um, the experience of recording those records, it, it gives each one unique light. I think the only record that really just isn't like really not focused or really gone into a whole lot of detail for is The Descent of Man. They kind of talk about the title and the play on words from Darwin, but they, they don't really get much into the record. and And as a res, you know, as a result, the record itself is, I I love that record. It's one of my favorites, but it also just kind of exists as as compared to some of their other records.
1: Well, I think uh, you know the time period it came out in. As you were talking about, um, it came out in in 2010. You know, about eight years removed. You uh, know, have your drew from the process of belief. I think the rise of um, Spotify and being able to consume music in in that way um, a little bit different. And it was also just a different record for them. It's almost uh, you you have a, you know Mike Campbell from you know, Top of the Heartbreakers is on that record, and it has that feel to it. Uh, more of a this rock record, for more. Their mid-tempo stuff, but also just almost simpler songs in a way. I also really enjoy that record and and also the the fast songs there. You know the you know the song "Only Rain" I've told you before is one of my all-time absolute favorite Bad Religion. Such a
0: great songs. fucking song.
1: Yeah, just um, a, a perfect Bad Religion song. I think in almost every respect. And I think, but you know, the only line that I think you saw, I think Mr. Brett says in the uh, uh, Brett Garwood says in the book is that you know I wasn't happy with how the record came out. That's 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 the line. I wasn't happy if the record came out, and then True North. So True North was one of those. Um, it was cool to learn about the record True North. That was stuff I did not know about. That uh, you know, out of the sixteen songs, uh, Graffin wrote ten of them. That it was inspired. Um, you know, the song True North. You know, was re- inspired by his son writing him a letter and that he was running away from home, and that the the song Fuck You was, which is a, a you know a big crowd favorite of bad religion um, probably also related to being able to just easily stream that song. Um, and it's also a, a, a good, a, again, organizing principle to mm-hmm. yell, to yell that out in many different F of life. But that was from, came from his son to saying to tell him to fuck himself. It was like, wow. Okay. It's cool to learn what some of these songs are about. Cause I thought, you know, that record came out in um
0: 2013, in,
1: 2013, right after the 2012 presidential election, and there's some allusions to Mitt Romney running for president in there. And I know that's uh um,
0: Citizens United I, has is yeah. a topic that's touched upon in a few songs. And yep. yeah.
1: Yeah, and but that, how many of those songs are actually personal? Because I think sometimes you um, you don't think that these battery religion songs are they're always about um, making sense of the world, maybe in the geopolitical sphere or spiritual sphere even, but that some of these, thoughts, they're, they're, they're personal. And I think when bad religion gets in that personal, uh, they get there more often than I think maybe listeners even know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we should wrap up here, but, um, I mean, this conversation is emblematic and a good representation of conversations that you and I have all the time.
1: This uh, is, I mean, I think um, for the listeners at home during the last few months, I think while, you know, there's been many talks over the last almost 20 years that we've known each other about the ranking of battery religion records and songs, I think in, in earnest, we have focused on the last number of months. We have our, you know, we ranked all battery religion records of, as of 2020, we ranked the top 10 songs, we ranked every first song on any battery religion record, every last song on every battery religion record, and then our favorite of the records that were released on Atlantic Records. So, uh, which I think we will probably continue with uh, different versions of that list, but hopefully what people see at home is not only do, do we love, um, you know, just love the music and love the band, but love you know, um, love what it means to us and our friendship uh, as well for them.
0: And there you have it, my interview with John Marulo, I should have mentioned that we're bandmates as well. So please check out our band, Protagonist. And that's it. We'll catch you next week on the Berman Hour Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Let's go.